You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Last week, um, well, so, okay, DIY, do it yourself. This is a phenomenon here in, in our country, so much so that it, it has its own channel now. Uh, in fact, there's multiple channels where that's all it's about. Um, last week, I said at some point in, in life as we mature, we have to begin to distinguish between wants and needs. Well, I want to submit to you this morning that at some point in life, as you grow up, as you get older, you get out on your own, maybe you got a place of your own, eventually you have a decision to make. Are you a Home Depot person or a Lowe's person? Just for the sake of knowing, how many Home Depot people do we have in the crowd today? Okay, how many Lowe's people? You're my people. Let me tell you why. Home Depot, do you, do you remember off the top of your head their slogan? They say it on their commercials. You can do it. We can help. Um, like there's a problem, but you can fix it. If you just have the right supplies, the right tools, the right information, the right knowledge, you can do it. And that's when I want to get in Home Depot's face and just say, you liar. When I walk into Home Depot, I actually feel like the people in there think I can do it. And they they just want to show me where something is and send me on my way. The people in Lowe's, they know. that They know, uh, here comes that fool again. Uh, We best not help him. Uh, Here's what you need, but you're going to need to call somebody. You saw on the, the thing there, it said need help, and there was a question mark. That question mark's just there to subversively make us feel better about ourselves. They're not really asking me a question. They're telling me, you need help. Come see us. That's why I am a Lowe's guy. Well, at some point, we hopefully all come to the realization that all things are broken, including us. And the danger lies when we start trying to fix it on our own. When we try to fix what's broken on our own, we just break it more. As a child of God, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, we can begin to sense the righteousness of God burdening and stirring our hearts that something is wrong out there, yes, but also in here. And it needs to be made right. At the same time, if I attempt to make it right on my own, in my flesh, I wind up making other things wrong. See, it can't be God's will my way. It has to be God's will God's way. And I don't always fully grasp this in my life. You may have some trouble with it at times also. This morning, we're going to see as this little baby Moses grows up and becomes a man, we're going to see Moses walk through this, that it has to be God's will, God's way. If you will turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, last week we started in Exodus 2, Moses was born, his mother put him in a basket in the river, 
so that he would not be found and killed. He is found by Pharaoh's daughter. She has pity on him. She says, I need somebody to take care of this baby, winds up taking him back to his own mother. So his mother nurses him. As he gets older, she takes him back to Pharaoh's daughter and he becomes her son. So this little boy winds up growing up as a Hebrew in not only an Egyptian home, but as Egyptian royalty. So now that's where we are. Look with me in Exodus chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, looked around, seeing nobody, nobody's watching. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Well, the man popped back at Moses and said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely what I did, everybody knows about it. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And Moses went and sat down by a well. Well, the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. But shepherds came along and tried to drive them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and he watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, who later we learn is called Jethro, Jethro said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Their dad said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? See, a good man was hard to find back then. A godly good man was even harder to find. He's got seven daughters. A godly man comes along. They come back and he's like, why didn't you bring him home? Go get him. So he tells him, somebody go get this guy, bring him home. We're going to feed him. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. Of course he was. He had seven daughters. (laughs) And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Go back with me to verse 11. It says Moses went out to his people and he saw their burdens. Several years ago, um, I heard Pastor Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church talk about a holy discontent. This is a term that he had come up with, making the point that all of us as children of God at some point in our life, that God begins to stir our hearts in such a way that there is something in this world we can no longer ignore, that we have to act upon, do something about it. Well, Moses had found his holy discontent. He was beginning to feel the draw of God to rescue God's people. But here's the problem. Moses was beginning to sense God's will for his life, but he wasn't ready to surrender to God's way. He wasn't ready to to go God's way with that will. 
Think about this. God was not calling Moses to avenge his people. Uh, If you'll notice the title that we've given the sermon for today, God begins to draw the deliverer, not God's drawing the avenger. His people don't need an avenger. He wasn't calling them to avenge or, or make restitution for his people, but to lead them out of slavery. So how do we wind up in this place where Moses is striking down a man and burying his body in the sand? Well, here's how Moses allowed his passion of his flesh to override the Holy Spirit. You and I, as children of God, as people of God, as followers of Christ, cannot allow the passion of our flesh to override the purposes of God's spirit. And that's exactly what Moses did in this moment. As Stephen, in Acts chapter 7 young man named Stephen, who is a a follower of Christ. He's made one of the first deacons in the New Testament church. He's standing before the Jerusalem council and he's essentially sharing the gospel. He's doing it from the beginning of the Old Testament and he's coming all the way through to Jesus. And in it, when he starts talking about Moses, Stephen helps us understand something about this situation that just happened here. We already understand it from reading, but Stephen brings light to the fact that Moses obviously wasn't ready to lead God's people, but they weren't ready to follow him either. Because Moses comes out the next day after this happens, simply tries to uh, get between two of his brothers and one of them says, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? What are you gonna do? Kill me as well? Moses isn't ready. We face this problem at times as well, that the passion of our flesh gets in our way. So the question for us is, how do we guard against the passions of the flesh and follow the purposes of the spirit? Well, I wanna submit to you this morning that we do this by resting in our identity and by trusting in God's sovereignty. We have to rest in our identity and trust in God's sovereignty. Moses eventually had to choose where his identity lied. He had to choose basically who he was going to be. This is a a man who, um, in relative terms, still pretty young. He's 40, all right? He was born into poverty, but then raised in the palace. This man is a Hebrew, an Israelite, but also an Egyptian. To say that there is some internal struggle and conflict going on is an understatement. That being said, at some point, Moses and us, we have to determine who we are and who we belong to. When this moment of crisis, moment of tension finally came, Moses made the decision I belong to God. He identified with the Hebrews. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, it says in verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses' identity was found in and defined by the promise 
of God. Ours must be as well. Most of us in this room um, do not have to choose between whether or not I want to be a Huntsvillian or a Christian or choose between, oh, I'm a Huntsvillian and a Hebrew or whatever the case may be. Okay, but here's what we do have to choose. If you've come to the point of recognizing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, there comes a point of reconciliation and decision. Am I going to continue to rule my kingdom or be a citizen of God's kingdom? Because I can't do both. I may live in Huntsville, but trust me when I tell you, I wake up every day with at least a morsel of a desire to resurrect my kingdom. I have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. Who am I? Who do I belong to? And when we determine I'm a child of the living God, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What this means for your life and mine is God's will God's way. Moses was very obviously reconciling his identity. This this was happening, but he was not yet trusting in God's sovereignty. And so the Lord has some work to do in Moses's heart and life. Now, you and I arrive at that point probably sometimes as well. There's something that God needs to work out in our heart, in our life. Observation. Most of the time that we arrive at that place, we're going to get led into the wilderness. We're going to get walked through a valley. We're not in those moments probably going to feel like, hey, Jesus, it's great up here on top of the mountain. Let's just hang out for a while. No, those are going to be the moments of, Oh, dear God, why have you brought me here? We need to very, very cautiously remember in those moments, this is not punitive. This is not punishment. I'm not being drug out here because I did something wrong. God is disciplining me because he loves me and has purposes for my life. This is where Moses was. God had to empty him of himself so that he might fill him, refine him, prepare him. God does that with us as well. So Moses flees to the wilderness. And as we're going to see here in the weeks to come, what does Moses begin doing? Moses becomes a shepherd. Why would Moses, um, the prince of Egypt, an Israelite, head out into the desert and become a shepherd? Well, God had easily two purposes in this, probably more, but let's just talk about two. Number one, becoming a shepherd further separates Moses from the Egyptians. If you look in Genesis chapter 46, this is when Joseph finally brings his brothers to Egypt He says to them, uh, Genesis 46, verse 33, this is Joseph talking to his brothers. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? You tell them, 
Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And I want you to tell him this so that he will give you the land of Goshen to dwell in. But now why would he do this? Because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. Do you know who the the Jews, uh, the Israelites hated? The Samaritans. Do you know who Egyptians couldn't stand? shepherds. You nasty people have been wandering around with animals. Here's what's going on. Before Moses could lead God's people out of Egypt, God had to get Egypt out of Moses. There's nothing Moses could have done to further distance himself from being an Egyptian than to become a nasty shepherd. So why else would God purpose for Moses to do this? Well, if I'm God, which obviously is not the case, but if I'm the Lord and I'm preparing the deliverer to go and shepherd my people, what better way to prepare them than to have him shepherd actual sheep? I mean, it sounds pretty common sense to me. This church, we probably have about 400 plus people, maybe a little bit more that call this their church home. There are like six and seven pastors and elders here and we consider it a complete honor, joy and privilege to serve you, lead you, shepherd you. But I will also tell you there are moments and there are seasons and there are times when the task is daunting. So that being said, I will admit to you without even blinking an eye, the idea of pastoring, shepherding a nation of a million people, what in the world? How would you possibly do this? This is an impossible task outside of resting and trusting in God's sovereignty. The only way to faithfully and effectively lead God's church is by remembering exactly that. It's his church. This is his church. You are his people. The only way that we lead is by his strength, through his spirit. Uh, The only way that things are accomplished is through his power. And friends, none of that is even possible without his sovereignty. None of it. We have to rest in our identity, son of God, daughter of God, and we have to trust in God's sovereignty. When we talk about that, when we use that word, what do we mean? It's a big theological, churchy sounding word. What does it mean that God is sovereign? The, the best way that I know to explain it to you is to say that there is nothing that slips past God. There's nothing that sneaks up on God. There is nothing that surprises God. There is nothing in your life or mine that God does not either allow or ordain. If those things are even separate, God hears, God sees, God knows all things, including our burdens. If you go back into Exodus 2, let's finish Exodus 2 here. What happens next? Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I would encourage you to underline, to circle, to highlight, to all of the above, those two very important words at the end of Exodus chapter two, because you and I are going to need those words throughout our life to rest in believing that God knows. I don't know what you might have walked through 10 years ago. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that maybe still burdens your heart. But I want you to know this morning, without a doubt, God knew. I don't know what the future holds for you. I don't know what it holds for me, but God knows. God is sovereign. God knows their burdens. God knows our burdens. Look at Psalm 34. Here's David. King David had a few struggles at times, to put it lightly. David says in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In Psalm 40, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I almost have to tap out on that one every time. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud, out of the clay. See, David, who walked through struggle after struggle, after trial, after trial, he walked through the wilderness. He hid in caves He went through all of it. He says, God knows, God sees, God hears, and God acts. Now, the problem is God typically doesn't do that on our timetable. He does it on his. But God not only hears, God not only sees, God not only knows, God is always working through his righteousness to walk us toward our good and his glory for his purposes. The question becomes, are we seeing those burdens? Are are you, am I seeing my burdens? Are we seeing one another's burdens as opportunities for the glory of God? Or are we seeing them as something else? Moses wasn't there yet. And it led to murder. And there's a lot of argument. You can read commentaries. You can read Augustine. And you can read all of these guys who for centuries have been debating that Moses was possibly in the right in what he did. That it was an act of like instant passion. But friends, my Bible says that Moses looked this way and that. And making sure that Nobody was around. He killed the man and buried him in the sand. 
you and I, I know this sounds crazy, we're always one step from there. Moses saw their burdens, and believe me, he saw their burdens. It says it twice in verse 1 or 11. Did you catch it? One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses saw their burdens, but the burden led to sin, which only led to and became a greater burden. This is why you and I, because we have that temptation sitting in front of us all the time. We have to beg the Lord to replace every morsel of hypocrisy in our life with his integrity. You and I have got to desperately cry out to God, Lord, search the dark places, search every place where truth does not reside and replace it with your purity, your righteousness and your integrity. And see, that's real churchy, what I just said. And we all probably want to go, yes, amen to that. But the problem is, is that we walk back out of here with those things remaining swept under the rug in the dark and we're still no more effective for the kingdom of God than we were when we walked in. The church, right now, we got some things to take care of. And I don't just mean the brook, I mean the church, universal. There's stuff going on in this world that the church needs to stand in the gap for. But the problem is, is that at times we're shooting ourselves in the knee and tying our own hands behind our back. Example. There is sex trafficking going on in our world. Obviously something that the people of God ought to stand up against. And we hear that and we go, yeah, that's awful. And that's probably going on in places like Bangladesh and Indonesia. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you, if you look at some simple geography, here sits this city called Memphis. Then here sits this city called Nashville. And then there's this other city called Atlanta. And then there's a city called Birmingham. Guess who sits right in the middle of all of them? We do. Do you know that there are people, there are women there are children that are trafficked right through our city to be sold as slaves. That sounds like something from 200 years ago. It's today. There is abuse going on. It's starting to be exposed at all levels in all kinds of places. But here's my point. We can't effectively stand up and stand in the gap against sex trafficking and abuse and and those type things when we gather as the body of Christ and there are parts of our body who are addicted to pornography. And I will just assure you this morning that someone in this room right now is allowing their heart and their mind to be drugged into the ditch of death. 
And if you think that you can secretly wander there and it not affect the, the people of God, you are sadly mistaken. But more than anything, it is bringing darkness into your life that God has called you out of. We can't vote and yell and scream about abortion. And and let me stop and just make sure you don't misunderstand me. There is no one who will stand up against abortion louder and more emphatically than me. Okay, I will meet you at the clinic Friday if you want to go out there with a sign and and reach out to women that there's a better way. God loves you. Let's talk about it. I'm there. I've been. But let me say this. We can't keep voting and yelling and screaming about the unborn and then pretend that the orphan and the widow, they're not there. Because we are here to stand up for the unborn, but we're here to stand up for the born as well. We cannot actively defeat things like poverty and hunger when we go on being consumed with gluttony and materialism. And on that one, I am as guilty as anybody. Maybe the reason that I don't want to counsel people who are in those situations is the guilt that I'm allowing myself to bear I don't know, but things are not in order. Like I know what God's will is, but I'm still like secretly determined to do it Brian's way. We we can't gather and worship as the Hebrews on Sunday and then go out and just blend in with the Egyptians the rest of the week. Jesus didn't say you are darkness in the darkness. He said, you are a light in the darkness. You're going to look different. You're going to shine out. You, you ought to be living in such a way that people are blinded by it, that there is something different about you. And because of this, because of this calling, we can't allow the passions of the flesh to override the purposes of the spirit. We need to beg the Lord to invade every space, just like David in Psalm 139, God, that you would, you would flush me of every ounce of hypocrisy and fill me with your integrity, your righteousness, your purity. With that, I want to ask you this morning to prayerfully consider what is God possibly calling you to? A few moments ago, I talked about Holy discontent. What is the Lord stirring your heart toward? Who is God calling you to lead or disciple? And let me make sure that none of us misunderstand. Um, Nobody gets to go, oh yeah, so God hasn't talked to me about that one. Actually, he has. Now, maybe you weren't listening, but we're all in it. We are all called to lead, to disciple someone. The question is, God, who is it that you have placed in my life right now, in my home, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, around me? God, who have you put in my life that I'm to go to? And maybe they don't even know that I'm discipling them, but I am leading them to say, if you wanna be like Jesus, follow me. 
Who's God put in front of you, beside you? What is God leading you to step out in faith to accomplish? You know what? I hope that we have a room filled with people who have at least a morsel of apprehension and maybe even some of that thing we call fear that God is calling me to something that if he doesn't come through, it isn't happening. But here's the good news. Uh, True love and the spirit of God drive out all fear. And that's where you and I, we have to be able to say, God, I want that audacity. I want you to accomplish things in my life and through my life that I could never do on my own, that you might be honored and glorified. Some of us, when we worship, our knees and our legs ought to be trembling because we know what we're being called to when we walk back out that door, that it requires faith. What's God possibly calling you to sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom? I don't know. You may not know, but the Lord longs to lead you and I there. Here's the thing. Here's possibly the most important question in all of this. Is it possible that this actually doesn't begin with my service or my sacrifice, but with my surrender? It's not about us finally coming to the place of going, oh, okay, fine. Wherever you need some help, just sign me up. No. Hey, whatever you need, just let me know. If you'll just stop asking, uh, I'll just give you whatever you need. No. It begins with our surrender of God, all that I am, all that I have, it's all yours. All of it. Where God has a will, God has a way. The will of God working through my life begins with the way of God working in my heart. Let me rephrase that. Say it this way. The hand of God at work through me begins with the heart of God coming to life within me. As we close this morning, I want us to read in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, he basically takes what God is doing um, in and through Moses in these moments of his life and slaps it on the end of an arrow, draws back and shoots it straight at us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think about people on temporary earthly terms anymore. We once regarded Christ like this, but we don't think about Christ that way any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. And I grab this, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, who through Christ is at work within us that he now might be at work through us. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. God placed the sin of the world on his son so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God wants to do great things in and through our lives, but it begins with him working within our hearts. Where God has a will, God has a way. But you remember what Jesus said? I'm the way. You want to know what it looks like? Come follow me. Come hear what I have to say. Come yield to my spirit. Follow me. I'm the way. Friends, none of this happens in your life and mine if our life is not submitted to and surrendered to this, to the word of God. You want to know the will of God? Here it is. You and I want to walk the way of God? That happens through the spirit of God, taking the word of God and bringing it to life in and through us. God is always, always about making us more like Christ. That's what he's doing right now in Moses. Let's pray that that's what he's doing within us as well. Let's pray together. In Psalm 139, King David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Lord, see if there is any offensive way within me. God, see if there is unconfessed sin within me. God, that you might bring it to light and you might lead me in the way everlasting. Would you pray that this morning? Father, search me. I know this sovereign God, you already know. Lord, if there's unconfessed sin in my life, would you, would you bring it to light? Then I might come, that I might bring it to the foot of the cross that I might repent of it, that I might confess it to my brother or my sister in Christ. That I might not walk in slavery to sin any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of the spirit of life has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. In these next moments, we're going to respond to the Lord in song, but maybe that's not how you need to respond to God. Uh, Maybe you need to just need to sit and rest in his presence. Maybe you need to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and pray. We invite you to come. If you need someone to pray with you or to share with you what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus, some of our pastors and elders and leaders are going to be in the back. They would love to pray with you, to talk with you. Lord Jesus, we proclaim that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Be exalted in this place. Be exalted in our lives. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.